Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. Today we are delving into the special issue of Heredity, which focuses on epigenetics and epigenetic inheritance. Stick around to hear from one of the editors, the first author of a review article looking at paternal epigenetic inheritance, and the first author of a research article looking at heritable epigenetic variation. But first, what is epigenetics? Essentially, epigenetics relates to phenotypic changes in organisms caused by the modification of how DNA is read and how genes are expressed, as opposed to alterations in the genetic code itself. While an old and at times highly controversial idea, the advent of next-generation sequencing is opening a wealth of research possibilities for studying epigenetic inheritance. This special issue is a celebration of the rapidly developing field of adaptive epigenetic inheritance. And, to paraphrase the editorial, the contributions it contains give an important snapshot of the state of the field, highlight its evolutionary consequences, and point out important future directions. And speaking of editors, who better to tell us about the motivation behind the special issue and the process that brought it to life? So my name is Fotinis Pagopoulou. Basically, last year, in the ESAB meeting in Groningen, I co-organized a symposium together with Professor Cristina Vieira from the University of Lyon, Professor Josefa Gonzalez from the Institute of Evolutionary Biology in Barcelona, and William Silva from Uppsala University. And the symposium was called The Evolutionary Implications of Transposable Elements, Epigenetics and Non-Genetic Inheritance. This was a quite successful symposium. We had really excellent presentations and contributions. And following this event, I got in contact with the editor of Heredity, Professor Barbara Mabel, who had the idea of creating this special issue together with Dr. Martin Lind from Uppsala University on the evolutionary consequence of epigenetic inheritance and whether it influenced genetic adaptation. And we had uh, two contributions that they were focusing on the paternal epigenetic inheritance, which is a, a part that this recently is gaining I say, attention. Uh, because up to now, it was more about the maternal effects are the ones that are more important because they think that the sperm doesn't really has much to contribute. But now we start realizing that there are quite a lot of factors and uh, RNAs that are transferred via the sperm. So we had a special focus on that. No, you're right. I mean, you mentioned there that the paternal side is getting a lot of focus. Epigenetics in general seems to be a really exciting and quickly moving area of research right now. And the special issue itself seems to be getting a lot of really fantastic response. And a lot of that is down to the hard work that yourself and Martin Lind put in. But one thing that I find particularly interesting is that you were an editor on the special issue whilst you were also finishing up your PhD. I kind of find that incredible. How did you end up being an editor on something like this so early in your career? To be honest, at the beginning, when it was the idea to create a special issue, I first of all, I thought it was a great opportunity to take on, but I was really not sure whether I should do this in the first place. And and for sure, I did not know what editing a special issue or editing any issue can entail. And also, I was a little bit doubting whether uh, Barbara would be okay with a PhD student becoming one of the guest editors of the journal. So initially, I asked the advice of my supervisor, uh, Professor Alex Eichmann, who has always been very supported. And, and he encouraged me. He told me that this is a great opportunity and I should go with it. So at the beginning, I was a little bit like uh, not very certain that it is a good idea. I knew it was a good opportunity, but I didn't know if it was a good idea for me to do it. Now that I look back to the whole process, I can say that I'm very, very happy I engaged with this challenge. It was a great school and I learned really a lot of things. That's great. And I know Barbara, I'm sure she would have been incredibly supportive. Um, yes, any question we had, she would always really answer very, very nicely and really helped. You said you learned a lot, and I'm really curious to find out about what you actually did. So you mentioned that you didn't really know what it would be like being an editor exactly. or something like this. Yeah, yes. and I, I feel like a lot of PhD students would think the same. So what is it that you did learn from this experience? Yeah, so I was learning as, as I was going. <laughs> um, so for this special issue, we started by first inviting 
scientists to participate. So first we had to find and select people that we thought that their work was focusing on the exact topic we wanted to address. Then we had to, to contact them, which means I had to create like a nice email so they will not delete it when they first see. Uh, and then after we got a tentative yes from uh, the people we wanted, we had to keep up the deadlines for the submission which are not always kept, I realized. Uh, so when the articles were submitted, together with the journal and the great help of the editorial assistant, Sandra, we had to find reviewers, uh, which was again a new process for me, how this is done. So I had first to read the article and then search for people that they are on this topic. And then after the reviewers would accept, um, after we would uh, receive their reviews, we had to make a decision on whether we should accept, reject or send the article for revisions. Um, and also towards the end, we also compiled the cover for the special issue uh, together with the production team. Because I didn't know any of these steps, the most important thing for me, it was that throughout all the steps along the way and all the decisions we had to make, I took them together with Martin. So we would always discuss what we thought would be the best way forward. I think we had a, like an excellent collaboration and I learned really a lot of things from Martin's experience, opinions and advices. I always had the, the feeling that he had a great judgment, even though being an editor was also the first time for him. So he was also learning. That sounds like an incredible amount of work. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, it pays off because the special issue, it does look fantastic and there is some really great research in there. But I guess from your perspective, because you were actively writing up your PhD thesis whilst you were doing this, how did you manage that workload? Was that easy? Was it very challenging? I would say um, the good thing was that the peak of work for the special issues, or like the decisions for the articles, uh, did not overlap much with the last months of my PhD. But still, it was very challenging. I had to be very organized and try not to lose focus on the things I had to do every day. Though that said, of course, there were a lot of not productive days, as we all have not productive days. <laughs> but I knew how much time I had for each task, both special issue related and PhD related. And so then I could work towards achieving them. So it's getting a good response. Um, I think it's really great. But are you happy with the way that it turned out? Are you glad that you're one um, of the editors? I'm extremely happy about it. So I learned a lot of things because, as I said, we took all the decisions together. Uh, so then I read all the articles. So then I learned a lot of things. I learned what actually happens behind the doors <laughs> from the moment that you submit an article. Because before that, I had no really idea. I knew about the reviews, but I didn't really know how much work that is and how much the journal and the reviewers do. It was just like a great, great experience. And I guess if there would be a PT student uh, thinking whether he or she should engage in something like this, I would say that for sure one should, uh, even if you feel intimidated or overwhelmed, even if it doesn't succeed, you learn so many things on the way and you gain so many experiences that it's definitely worth it. That was Dr. Fotenis Pegapolio from Uppsala University, who along with Dr. Martin Lind, also of Uppsala, guest edited the special issue. A big congratulations to them on their great work. And an extra congratulations to Fontini for defending her PhD thesis in May. I really hope other PhD students out there will follow your example and take on fantastic projects just like this. But next up, we're going to talk to one who already has. As Fontini said, the special issue was keen to highlight the role of paternal transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, which until now has received comparatively little attention. One of the papers focusing on this was the review, or concept article, Epigenetic Paternal Effects as Costly, Condition-Dependent Traits. I caught up with first author and PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales in Australia, Erin McCartney who told me why her and her collaborators were interested in paternal epigenetic inheritance, the current state of our knowledge on the topic, and what exactly these males could be doing to influence the development of their offspring. 
Well, most males don't actually invest that much in their offspring. So they don't provide paternal care and they don't provide these kind of nutrient-rich ejaculates that some males provide females, especially in insects. But they can still influence their offspring quality in quite often a substantial way. So we started thinking, well, are males investing in their epigenetic quality that is altering the quality of their offspring? And if this is the case, can selection actually act on males that are better at investing in their epigenome and their offspring quality compared to other males? And so this led us to kind of put it into an evolutionary ecology condition dependence life history framework, which is where if selection is acting on uh, fitness enhancing traits, they can become quite costly for um, males to invest in. And this makes them condition dependent. So males that are in higher condition, they're actually better able to invest in these costly reproductive traits. There's not actually that much empirical work. So this is kind of drawing together current evidence and some indirect evidence that is pointing to that direction. Yeah, and I do find it quite interesting because you're focusing very heavily on male investments here. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in most cases will still think that, you know, the male pops in, hands over some DNA, then gets out and leaves everything else to the female to provide. Yeah, that's right. Most people think that the females are the ones that invest all this energy and influence their offspring, which is absolutely true. That does happen. And that males don't actually invest anything. They just produce sperm and that's that. But now there's evidence that there's multiple epigenetic factors, which can include DNA methylation, which is where these different methyl groups are attached to different regions of the DNA. And this can switch on and off genes. In some cases, this can be transferred to offspring, as well as differences in chromatin structure, which is how the DNA is actually packed as well as these non-coding RNAs, which can bind to regions of the DNA and switch on and off genes as well. And so now there's a lot of research emerging that males actually can, in some cases, transfer these factors to the developing embryo and alter how genes are expressed in the offspring. But there still is a lot of research that needs to be done to actually pinpoint what exact epigenetic factor is causing those effects. There's another misconception that I think your paper tackles as well, um, and it's one that I've been kind of guilty of thinking myself, and that's that epigenetic effects are somewhat passive. You know, there's this sort of idea that maybe the parent gets stressed, this has a biochemical fallout, and then that alters how the offspring it develops. But you kind of tackle early on in this paper that that's not exactly what's happening, that this is an active process. So how is all that kind of playing in together? What kind of costs are we talking about? Yeah, so at the moment, it's a lot of indirect evidence, but we know that all these molecular processes require ATP energy. And so that means that they bear some type of molecular cost. But there's also what's called the molecular clock. So as males are aging, their methylation patterns are changing on their DNA, which suggests that there's something kind of malfunctioning along the way. And so we kind of suggest that potentially males that are of better quality may be more able to overcome these kind of constraints of becoming old. But there's also evidence to suggest that these are actually active processes maintaining a good quality epigenome. So these males are potentially having to 
fight against this stress and maintain the integrity of your epigenome. Yeah, so the selection side, actually, I find incredibly interesting in your paper, because I think there's still this debate between very gene-centric researchers and those kind of embracing the epigenome about how heritable epigenetic traits are over a long period of time and how selection is really acting upon this. So how are you seeing our current state of research exploring selective pressures on the epigenome? Yeah, well, there's a lot of research that needs to be done on how selection is actually acting on the epigenome. Because if we can actually see that selection can act on the epigenome and males that have, for example, better quality epigenomes, that actually will pave the way for a lot more research in order to understand the variation in fitness that we're seeing today. So I guess maybe to expand on that a little bit, obviously, well, it's a concept paper, review paper, one of the main aims is to kind of identify the big knowledge gaps that we have and where we should go next. So what are you hoping to see in the literature or what would you advise your fellow researchers looking at this topic to focus in on next? So one is actually trying to nail down whether these males are actually investing in epigenetic factors in their gametes that influence offspring quality and whether this actually requires a metabolic cost. That's a really hard question to tackle. So I'll be really interested to see how people go about it. Another question is actually to see whether selection is acting on these epigenetic factors. So um, looking, looking at questions like that. As you were saying, this is a concept paper. So it's really just outlining what evidence we have at the moment that these epigenetic factors are costly and just trying to get researchers to think about incorporating them into life history theory a bit more, how they could potentially act as um, reproductive traits, which I think is really interesting because they do have such important fitness consequences. That was Erin McCartney, first author on the review article, Epigenetic Paternal Effects as Costly Condition-Dependent Traits. Being a PhD student right at the start of her career, I also wondered what Erin thought about writing a review and whether or not this was the first one she'd written. I have written a couple of papers, but they're all empirical papers. So writing this paper was an entirely different process and it was a long time in the making and it took a lot of planning and rewriting and reshuffling. But in the end, I think writing a concept paper is a really great idea because it allows you to try think a little bit beyond maybe that direct empirical test that you're testing at that time in the lab. So it allows you to have a broader picture of your research area. Now, one thing that was particularly interesting in Aaron's paper was the lack of empirical studies to call upon. While particularly noticeable with paternal epigenetic inheritance, epigenetic inheritance in general is pretty hard to study. So really, there's a lack of empirical studies across the board. However, our next interview is with a researcher who's taking on the challenge. Dr. Yuan Ye Zhang from Chimini University in China is lead author on the paper Understanding the Evolutionary Potential of Epigenetic Variation, a comparison of heritable phenotypic variation in epirils, rills, and natural ecotypes of Arabidopsis thaliana. I caught up with Yang Ye to hear all about this fascinating study, but first, as an early career researcher, what got her into the field of epigenetic inheritance in the first place? During my master's thesis, I studied an invasive species. Its name is Waterhausen's, which is a clonal species. I find one genotype has become invasive globally, 
it was introduced from the North America, and this one genotype has become invasive into Europe, into Africa, and into Asia. And for me, it's very hard to believe that one genotype is possible to be so successful in so many different environments. Apparently, genetic variation cannot be the answer. So um, by then, I was thinking maybe it is epigenetic variation that can't for this one genotype adapt to a different environment. So that's how I get interested into epigenetics. And then at that moment, I read Oliver Bostoff's paper, uh, Epigenetics for Ecologists. And uh, I was also searching for a PhD position. And I wrote to him. And that's how myself personally involved in the study of epigenetics. And in general, I think epigenetics is important because it's also relevant to our human health. So many cancer is caused by the epigenetic changes in the cells. But as an evolutionary ecologist, I'm very interested in how epigenetic changes can contribute to ecology and evolutionary questions. I feel like it's definitely a growing view and opinion that epigenetics is playing an underappreciated role. But you talk in your paper about its possible effect in a natural setting but also that it's quite hard to study in a natural setting, which is why you focused on these things called EPRILs. Oh, well, I was going to say, I've never actually heard of them, and clearly I don't even know how to pronounce the abbreviation. So maybe you could explain a little bit about what these are and how they're helping you study epigenetics. The epirules are epigenetic recombinant inbreeding lines, and epirules are generally very variable over the epigenomes but they are almost identical in the genomes. So this slice was designed for isolating the genetic effect from epigenetic effect in studying the consequences of epigenetics. So uh, this epiril was created by Professor Vincent Claus group in Economo, and they created for the purpose of creating multi-locus epigenetic variation that is independent of genetic variation. The variation of epigenetics in a single locus can create a variation in the phenotypes. So it's like Mendelian trait. The classic Mendelian trait is the variation in DNA sequence of one gene locus can create phenotype variation. For instance, in the round and wrinkled P seeds. And epigenetic variation in one locus can also create this variation in the flower symmetry. So if it's normally methylated, the flower is bilateral symmetry. And if it is not methylated, the flower is radially symmetry. But there are many trees in nature determined by many gene locus. And if we want to understand whether epigenetic variation can contribute to the variation of this kind of trait, we really need variation of epigenetics at multiple locus of the genome, but no genetic variation. And that's the reason why they created these epirules. And it's really interesting that you bring up the differences in the phenotypes of these plants. Because I think anybody who knows anything about plants will know that genetically very, very similar lines can have incredibly different morphologies. But in this study, you're using a plant that anybody in science, I'm sure, will recognize, Arabidopsis thaliana, an incredibly common model organism in genetics. So maybe you could explain what you found in the study. We found epirules 
can create phenotype variation that is comparable to reels and natural sessions. And secondly, we find that epi-reels can create stable phenotypes, as stable as reels and those natural sessions. This indicates that epigenetic variation among epi-reels and the genetic variation among reels can create potentially equal variation. And these variations are stable, and so that means it can be subjected to natural selection and created adaptive patterns. Uh, so the role of epigenetics in nature is potentially important. So I guess just generally, what do you think is the most important message in your paper? The take home is the epigenetic variation can create equally phenotype variation compared to reels and nature sessions. This is the first one. And the second one is uh, the epigenetic variation is potentially equally stable compared to DNA sequence variation. And if both these two conditions are met by epigenetics, then that means epigenetic variation can be subjected to natural selection and yield adaptive patterns. Great. And within these Arabidopsis lines, the exact variation that you're looking at that was being very stably maintained by epigenetic variation, what kind of traits are we talking about? We only measure phenotypes in this paper. So we just compared with inline variation. So if it is not very stable, then the with inline variation would be very large. And we actually found the with inline variation is similar across different groups. So the with inline variation is similar between epi-reels and reels. So that's why we think that the epigenetic variation in the epireals can create stable phenotypes as the replications of these lines create similar phenotypes. So I guess it's really interesting to think that there are these stable phenotypes being maintained and it appears heritable using essentially a non-genetic component. And you do highlight the potential for there being some evolutionary significance in this epigenetic variation. So I wonder where you think we should go with this research next and how you think studies like this might shape our thinking on evolutionary biology in general. So the use of this unnatural epirios has been intensively criticized, actually. But I think we simply don't have a second choice. So if we want to study epigenetic variation in many loci of the genome, this epirios is potentially the only and the best choice because it minimizes the genetic variation as far as possible. So the observed pattern is primarily caused by the epigenetic variation. I think our study still makes sense or give um, quite some influence for future studies. Another criticize on the epigenetics is the stability of epigenetics remains uh, less known. So at this point, we are also working on that is we uh, conduct a, a multi-generation experiment. So we really put natural accessions in experiment and we use the next generation sequencing to trace how the epigenetic changes over generations. And together with the uh, phenotype data and the gene expression data and the genome data, we want to try to know how this epigenetic change can influence the phenotype change over generations. How stable are these epigenetic changes? That was Dr. Yang Ye Zhang, one of several authors in the research article Understanding the Evolutionary Potential of Epigenetic Variation, a comparison of heritable phenotypic variation in epirils, rills, and natural ecotypes of Arabidopsis thaliana. As you can probably tell, it is a very complex study, and it's really worth reading the full article if you have the time. But, unfortunately, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this month. 
My thanks to Fontini, Ern, and Youngie for sharing their special issue stories with us. I particularly hope that any Masters or PhD students, or for that matter, any other early career researchers, will be inspired by the ambition of the people featured in this episode. And obviously, we've only been able to touch upon the articles featured in the special issue, so I do hope you'll go and give them all a read. You can find them at www.nature.com forward slash hdy. While you're there, you can also find out more about Heredity and how you can publish your research in the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society and part of the Springer Nature Publishing Group. To keep up to date with the podcast and find out about breaking Heredity news, you can find us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. You can also follow the Genetic Society on Twitter at GenSocUK and find it on Facebook. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next month.